Well, tonight we're going to go to the book of Hebrews and um, going to be sharing some thoughts on the, the priesthood of Christ. What a fascinating book, really. Uh, you know, I'm, when I go to read devotionally, I'm like, man, what? I, I love Philippians. I, I really would like to read Colossians. Philippe, I, I, I went through Philemon the other day. It's one chapter, you know. It's just really neat how Paul deals with that little problem between Philemon and his master. Um, gives you a little bit of a window into their culture. And people say, well, the Bible endorsed slavery. Well, the Bible talks about slavery. It does not endorse slavery. And in biblical times, you pretty much ended in slavery without a war going on. They were, they were notorious for capturing people and selling them into slavery. I was sharing in our staff devotion, Amos. How about that for our very famous prophet, Amos? And uh, he, he prophesied during Uzziah's reign and Jeroboam's reign. So, and he, God lowered the boom on everybody, Moab, Ammon, and uh, Tyre. And he said, because of three sins and four, I will, I will not turn my eyes away from what you've done and you're going to pay for your sins. He told Israel that. And it's kind of interesting when some of these countries, one of the things God says that he was going to punish them for was they overran communities in Israel, took the people and sold them into slavery to Edom, which, is, which was south of Judah. And, uh, you know, there's Tyre and Alexander comes through three or four hundred years after that and wipes out Tyre takes the 30,000 people on that island. Have you ever read about that? Tyre's a little island off of uh, the coast of Lebanon. And it's a fortress. You know, you, you just couldn't defeat it. And when Alexander the Great came through, if, if cities said, okay, we, we'll be under your rule, he spared the city. But if they said, no, we don't accept you being over us, he would destroy the place. And with this island off the coast, they thought they were safe. He took seven months with the buildings that they demolished on the coast and built a causeway out to that island and destroyed it. <laughs> and there's Tyre who used to sell people into slavery three or four hundred years later. And when God says, I'm going to bring back on you what you've done, he was serious. So when you go into these books and you see the fascination. I, I just fascinated by Hebrews. Um, we're going to go first to chapter 2. You know, you can go through all of the New Testament and read about the church, the structure of the church, the, the functions of the church, the leadership of the church. You can go into Ephesians where the different offices of the church are mentioned. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and there's you know, overseers, there's bishops, there's just leaders that they mention throughout. One office that you will never see mentioned in the role of the church is that of priest. It's not an office. The one thing about the church that you will see is the priesthood of all believers. And that's a whole different subject. But there's no priest. And it's kind of interesting that there's some churches that have this sacramental grace type approach to forgiveness of sin. You go to confessional and you confess and the, the priest 
absolves you of your sins and, and tells you to do certain things. And that is totally foreign to the Bible. So where does that come from? Well, one, of, one of my dear friends in the ministry, he pulled up to our little 12 by 60 mobile home to a, a new pastor, young pastor with a three-year-old son and, and took a liking to me. I have no idea why. <laughs> we were out in the sticks and he was a prudential life insurance salesman. I said, we can't afford anything right now. But I, I know later that God sent him out there just to be my friend. And the, he was a charismatic, spirit-filled Catholic, very involved in full gospel businessmen's fellowship, and, um, but stayed in the Catholic Church. Here's one of the two books that he wrote, and I've got both of them. He died several years ago of leukemia. I, we kept in touch. And I said several years ago. It was probably 30 years ago he died. Of leukemia, but uh, the first book he wrote was "Authority in the Roman Catholic Church: The Corporate Rejection of Jesus." He would call me and says, "You need to pray for me. I got an op-ed going to appear in the uh, Jacksonville Times Journal, and the Monsignor is going to blow his lid off." <laughs> and uh, but here's the description of um, of the author. This is this book is. The Mary Christ, hyphen Christ, idolatry in the Roman Catholic Church. Needless to say, he was not a popular <laughs> spokesperson for the Catholic Church. Here's a description. A former Trappist monk, Maximilian Russer, is a much-discussed author of the controversial, controversial book. I read that, you know, The Corporate Rejection of Jesus. He is a member of the American Academy of Religion, the Society of Biblical Literature, Probably one of the smartest men, knew Latin, Greek, Hebrew, uh, brilliant, um, but such a humble man and wanted to see the Catholic people experience what he experienced in that monastery one night at his bed, Jesus. He encountered Jesus. And he said, our, our monastery was strict. We could only sing songs in Latin. We could not talk to each other. We all had responsibilities of taking care of the buildings. But the only thing we could utter were chants and prayers in Latin. And uh, he said he got out and found out that John Kennedy had been assassinated. Totally blocked off. But this guy had such an encounter, and I asked him so many times, I said, why do you stay in the Catholic Church? He says, God hasn't released me. I've got so many friends there. If I'm not going to tell them, I don't know who will tell them, who will not introduce them to this wonderful experience of knowing Jesus without the, 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 all of the stuff that they've been taught over the years. And so he really... It changed my attitude toward Catholics. Catholics are some of the most dedicated people you will ever find. And there are many, many, many of them that are really born again. You know, maybe some of them are like Max was. He stayed in there because he felt like he needed to share in small groups what the Lord could do in their lives. Um, well, Jesus is, of course, the one priest that we have. And I'm going to take you to chapter 2. Um, because it kind of starts, this is where he's first mentioned as a priest, and we're going to go through a, a few passages in Hebrews this evening. 
and um, really some interesting things that we're going to touch on. So if you have your Bible, just turn to Hebrews and stay there for a little while with me. Um, this is Hebrews chapter 2. This is toward the end of chapter 2, where the writer says, Now since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but the descendants of Abraham. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. In other words, he had to take on our lives so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. This is one of the first mentions of his role as a priest in service to God in order to make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Uh, this make atonement is another word, propitiation. I love the word propitiation because it has this sense of a satisfaction of, of, of guilt there. We use the word atonement and we kind of like don't get the gist of atonement, of a satisfaction of something owed. Uh, Jesus was the satisfaction of where we were in deficit. We, we were as a sin... The sin had put us in a deficit relationship with God. And so he became a high priest so that he could make atonement or be a propitiation for the sins of the people. And, and he expounds this really in chapter 7. But I want to take you to the latter part of chapter 6 when he picks this theme up really heavy. Chapter 7 is just a great chapter. But it's kind of tied into the last couple of verses there in Hebrews 6. We have this hope, this is verse 19 in Hebrews 6. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and steadfast. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, our forerunner, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And all of chapter 7 is almost devoted to this linkage between Jesus and Melchizedek. And one of the great mysteries of the New Testament is who is this Melchizedek? Well, I'm not going to try to solve that mystery because it's not solvable. <laughs> there, there's, there, everybody who has an opinion, that's what it is. Nobody really knows. All that we do know is that he had no genealogy. There was no... And, and I think the reason, and here again I'm becoming... You know, I'm speculating as to why that's put in there. Not a mention of mother or father. Who was he? Was he a, an appearance of a pre-incarnate Jesus? He's definitely a, a type of Christ, but he's not, he wasn't Christ in a pre-incarnate. This was a man. He was, he was a king. He was also a priest, which is unusual for someone in that to have those two roles. But... You know, he, he has this great um, part in Abraham's story in Genesis 14. So before we get too far into that, let me, let me take you to um, the last week of Jesus, the Passion Week, deep into the Passion Week. And um, Matthew 22 is specifically where I'm going to reference. 
And it's the end of Matthew 22. Do you remember when uh, they were throwing everything but the kitchen sink at Jesus as far as question? They were doing their best to catch him in a misstatement so that they can have a case against him because they were were already planning to kill him. And they were just trying to trap him. It's almost like the FBI was interviewing him. You know, they, they kept throwing these questions at him, and Jesus asked him a question. Remember that? He said, I want to ask you a question. What do you think of Messiah? Whose son is he? You remember that? And they said, well, he's David's son. Then why would David say, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit right here until I make your enemies your footstool. If he's David's son, why is David calling him Lord? And I love the ending of Matthew 22. And they didn't ask him any more questions. But that passage is connected. That's Psalm 110. And, and it's only like six verses long. I'm going to read you Psalm 110 because it's, it shows, that passage shows up in Hebrews 7. That same passage shows up in Hebrews 7. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the exact quote that Jesus gave them. If Messiah is David's son, how can he also be his Lord? That was the mystery that stumped these people. They didn't have an answer for that. Well, the answer was that Messiah is the Son of God, came through humanity wide through the seed of David. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, which is a, a, a kingly description. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, To you brings the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Are you ready for this? You are a priest forever after order Melchizedek. The very same passage that Jesus used to let these Pharisees know that Messiah was also an authority over David, Lord over David, not just his son, is connected to this prophecy that the Lord has not changed his mind, you are the same one that is being spoken of in in verse 1, that Jesus is the one that is being talked about there. He's also the one that is mentioned in verse 4, that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the writer of Hebrews goes to that same psalm that Jesus referred to in Matthew and pulls out verse 4, to help his case in what he's doing in chapter 7, presenting Jesus as the sole priest of our lives, the high priest. And he's not just the rightful high priest, as he says in chapter 2, where he talks about he's come through the same mass of humanity, so he's touched with our infirmities and our weaknesses, and he comes from the pool of humanity so he can represent us, but he's also... The Son of God can represent God. Isn't that amazing how he's the bridge between those two? And he's the high priest that goes, I think the word is used, within the veil later on. And he's carrying his own blood 
of the most holy sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats, because we're told the blood of bulls and goats cannot free people from the guilt of sin. That's why they have to do it every year. That's why Yom Kippur is still celebrated every fall. It's going to be on October the 8th, and it begins on October the 8th. And this is one of the references to the priesthood that was established under Aaron and through the tribe of Levi. They had to do this every year because it wasn't sufficient. So, so why did they do it? It was pointing them, the law was always pointing them to a life of faith, not a life of regulation. It's not a matter of keeping the law. It's a matter of realizing that you can't keep the law to its very detail and you have to trust God by faith. So here's this story in Hebrews 7. And we have plenty of time. I should have left my watch out of my pocket here. Oh, yeah, we got plenty of time. So are you ready? Are you at Hebrews 7? Hardly ever do this, but here we go. Now, remember, we just finished up with him saying, you are order, uh, you are a priest forever after order Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and the priest of God Most High. This is not Genesis 14. This is Hebrews 7. But it sounds like Genesis 14. He met Abram returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed them. And Abraham gave him a tenth, a tithe of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And remember, Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, so there's this connection. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, if you can figure that out, I welcome you to spend the rest of the evening showing me what is that about. But just think, this is kind of, almost kind of like we're saying this. Just think how great. But this is Hebrews. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, there's a principle coming here. I don't want you to miss it. Now, the law requires the descendants of Le Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, and he's referring, and this is kind of why we really need to take that word that with all the mystery around him, he is a man. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed Abraham who had the promises. And, and I think it's important that I make that wording clear for what's about to be said in verse 7, that the tithe was given... Genesis 14 is, is really an interesting story. You know that Lot and his family and a bunch of people became captive and some kings plundered the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and carried a bunch of people off. And Abraham's interest in what happened there was his nephew Lot was carried off with his family. So Abraham got his men together and they went after him and attacked him, surprise attacked him, got all the stuff back, brought it back. And uh, before he settled up with the king of Sodom, he 
stopped where Melchizedek was, and he gave him a tenth of all the spoils. Melchizedek turned around and blessed him. Listen to verse 7. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And that word greater is all through Hebrews. A greater covenant, a greater priest, all of these things is pointing to a greater dimension of spirituality that we have through Jesus. In the one case, he says in verse 8, I'm I'm still just reading Hebrews 7. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. I love this. Because Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. He was still in the DNA of Abraham. So in proxy, when Abraham gave the tenth to Melchizedek, he was bestowing a greater dimension on Melchizedek. And Levi, in his DNA, was recognizing that as well that there's going to be a greater priesthood. The priesthood of Levi was just temporary. It wasn't meant to be permanent because sacrifices could not really do what God wanted to do in people's lives. If perfection, verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Probing question. And I think we understand where he's, where, where he's, the conclusion he's coming to. When the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe. And he's talking about Jesus coming out of the tribe of Judah, not Levi. No one from that tribe has ever served at the altar, for it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. What we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation uh, on, on this system, the Levitical system, as to his ancestry. I, I don't know. If you're in Hebrews 7, you ought to just underline this, highlight this verse. I look, this is just amazing stuff here. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. I think we would, could put the word permanent there, that he is permanently our priest. Here it is again. For it is declared, this is Psalm 110, verse 4, all over it. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. How about that? Psalm 110 shows back up, and it's not finished yet. There's, There's still another reference later on. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. I imagine there's probably some Judaizers that didn't like that statement. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. 
Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. It all comes back and centers on the work of Christ. I said earlier about there's, there's uh, some fellowships in Christianity that, for lack of a better way for me to describe it, is sacramental grace, meaning the church dispenses grace. Children are baptized, and in their baptism they become saved. Their, their, their sins as a baby are pronounced to the congregation. The congregation pronounces forgiveness because I've said in that kind of service. And so they're saved. Nothing will ever change that. But this is where it gets really off track into regulation and, and it kind of dismisses the intercessory part of Jesus being your Savior. You know, the Bible is really clear. If, if we confess our sin, He, and that He is not a church leader, that He is Jesus. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so it's, it's frightening to think that there's this idea that someone's salvation has been taken care of by a system and not by a person. And so this is why he just the writer of Hebrews is like he's writing to us today to say, wake up to these people that believe that. That Jesus has become the guarantor, not someone else. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And this, this theme goes on, just circles back again and again. He's trying to get this across to people who must feel otherwise because it's almost like redundant. He just keeps going back to this theme. Therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and that's what the high priest had to do on Yom Kippur. He had to kill um, a bullock for himself and had to present a sacrifice for his own sins before he could present the sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And this is what he's, he's pointing this out. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son. The oath goes back to that Psalm 110 oath. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a great principle back in verse 7 that the lesser is blessed by the greater. It's a wonderful principle. You know what? It probably has more to do in everyday life than what we think. 
because we, we have this idea that greater means up here and not down here. And Jesus said, whoever be great among you will be the servant. So we have a little problem figuring that out sometimes. And it's established the truth, though, that Jesus, high priest, the priesthood of Christ, is greater than any other priesthood. Now, Rome, uh, Hebrews 11 is this chapter on faith. I want to mention just a couple of things in chapter 10, though, before you get to that great chapter on faith. And then this will finish us up. This is uh, Hebrews 10. And it goes back to this whole thing about Jesus being the high priest. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Do you think we need reminding that this is a settled issue? The atonement for our sin is a settled issue. It is not being settled. It is a settled issue. He once and for all doesn't need to be repeated. We're living in a continuum of of time, and sometimes that dimension gets us thinking that from this point back, He has forgiven us of our sins. But the reality is when he died on the cross, all of our life was future, which meant all of our sins were future. And in anticipation of us arriving on this planet, he died for our sins. Sometimes the guilt factor will set in with people and they give up because they feel like that they've messed up and, and they've messed up their forgiveness and they've messed up their relationship with God. And, and that's a sad thing because that's the... That's not the way God looks at it. He says, if you confess your sin, and he wasn't saying that to pagans, he was saying that to believers. In his word to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3, we use that sometimes in soul winning, but he was really saying it to believers, saying, hey, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door, we'll have fellowship. Our fellowship will be renewed. So, He's, he's not abandoning us when we mess up. He's actually knocking at the door saying, hey, I'm here to help you. If you confess your sin, I'll, it'll be wiped out. And, and I really think that there's a lot of people walking around with a lot of guilt on them that's not necessary. And, and these kind of truths, I believe, should release people from living life on the edge of either God judging you or rejecting you because of a failure in your life or a, a current place emotionally you're at that you feel alone and in a way and you kind of misread that in a way to feel like that he's left you. And, and I've seen that in, in a very close family member before and nothing could convince her otherwise. And so it was just a trick. It was a trick either of her mind or the enemy or both. But I just think the, the way he, he continues to go back to that theme in chapter 10, he's, in verse 11, he says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. You think he's kind of trying to get the point across? 
For when this priest had offered for all time, he's talking about the priesthood of Christ. For when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, what do you think that means? He sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished. That part is finished. But do you remember Psalm 110? The Lord said unto my Lord, sit right here until I make your enemies your footstool. That is ongoing right now. He just didn't sit down because he finished the sacrifice. He sat there in fulfillment to the, the oath that God spoke over him in Psalm 110 that you are the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and you sit right here. After you do what you're supposed to do, you sit right here and one by one the enemies are going to be made your footstool. Jesus, even Paul says... All the enemies haven't been put there yet, but they're being put there. So we, we do look at it as a finished place. But even while he's sitting there, what is he doing? He's still actively our intercessor. He ever liveth to make... The finished part, I think, is more of this... Where does a king... What posture does a king really take? He sits on a throne. And there's this enthronement that he is a priest. After order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek was a king of righteousness, king of peace. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is that. He's not going to be that. He is that. So he's rightfully sitting in a place of authority on the throne room of God, in the throne of God, because he's fulfilling the oath of Psalm 110. I'm sorry, I'll just keep it, uh, not finished reading this. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. It explains it. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, how about figuring that one out? Are you looking at the same sentence I'm looking at? He has made perfect. That sounds like it's past tense to me. I don't know. I'm, English was not my best subject. He has made perfect forever. That does sound like it's a done deal. Those who are being made holy. Now, you feel welcome to come up and explain that to me. I think we probably suspect ourselves so much. And we're either living under unreasonable expectations of how we should handle things. Or we're living on, under woe is me. I can't ever measure up one or the other, but I really, somewhere in all this, friends, I, 
I believe God wants us to find a place of communion with Him, open fellowship with Him, power to take us past our moments of not feeling His presence or whatever. Because we have ebbs and flows, mainly because we live in one of these. You know, and some some days your back hurts a little bit more than what it hurt the day before, and it's kind of hard to be really chirpy and be happy. <laughs> but we spiritually, though, we should go back to this. Go back to it again and again and just read and and dive into God's Word. Today's U version verse, of course, is the great verse that all scriptures inspired of God, God breathed. And it is. And it waits for us every morning. It waits for us at night. We have all kind of means of, of tapping into the Bible, don't we? Have our smartphones. We, we just have all kind of things that we can do to read. I want us to stand together. I want us just to pray and ask God to give us a fresh understanding of our high priest. And I don't know. I don't think that he only stood when Stephen was about to come. I think maybe he stands a lot when people get there, welcomes them in. Because he says, he could really say, like sometimes we say to people, and I hope we're truthful, I've been praying for you. But I think one of the things he just might say to us when we get there is like, I've been praying for you. I've been in